Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come among your people and that you would guide them into all truth and that you would show us the way that leads to life eternal. Amen. Some years ago, I was given the job opportunity of a lifetime. A guy who lived here in town offered to me at the time I was 25 and footloose and fancy free, he offered me the opportunity to go make a lot of money out in south central Montana on the shores of the Stillwater River renovating a log cabin that he had bought. I had previously lived in Montana. Once Montana gets in your blood, that's it. It's there for the rest of your life. So I jumped at the chance. The only difficult thing was uh, in the midst of watching the clear blue sky and the, the, the clouds float by and seeing the ridge line of old Sheep Mountain there in the distance, everything was perfect except for the fact that I was on a, on a, on a timeline. I had six weeks to do all this work. He said, whatever you do, just get done with it. And I realized one or two weeks in that I was in trouble on that timeline. There was no way I could do everything that I needed to do. Pretty soon I would need to go away. I would need to go back home. And so what did I do? I phoned a friend. I called him up and said, Tim, you have got to come out here and help me with this. I tell you what I'll do. If you'll come help me for two weeks, I'll let you go fly fishing. He agreed. And he got out there, and uh, we made it happen. In the meantime, as I waited for him, I began to make a list of all the things that I didn't want to do, all the things I couldn't do, all the things that uh, time crunched in on me. And uh, in that way, I was just like any employer. Before you post a job title or a job description, before you hire the new person, you get together with your HR team and you talk about the gaps in the coverage or the gaps in what you can accomplish in a given week or in a given quarter. This morning, I want us to look at what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do for us. This morning, I want us, if I can say it this way, I want us to look at the Holy Spirit's job description. What Jesus tells us the Spirit will do and how the Spirit will do it. So first, let's set the stage. The word that we've just heard out of John chapter 16 takes place on the night of Jesus' betrayal when he knew that his time was growing short. He met with his disciples in the upper room to eat a final meal with them and to give them instructions about what was to come, the things that they would face. He told them that he would be leaving soon and there would come a time when they would experience the rejection and betrayal that he himself had experienced. And with an eye toward the difficulties that lay ahead for them, Jesus promises to send them an advocate, a counselor, a friend. And this Holy Spirit's work would be twofold, to convict the world and to reveal the truth. In saying this, Jesus wanted to reassure His disciples that they would not be left to carry out their work on their own power, but that He would be with them through the Spirit. He would give them what they needed, when they needed it, through the Spirit. 
So what is it that we need? Well, first of all, our Lord knows, just as he knew about his disciples, that we need reassurance about the difficulties that we encounter in this world. We need reassurance when we look at a world that is so chaotic and incoherent that it seems like it has been abandoned by the presence of Christ. When we look around at a world and like those first disciples, we say, Lord, sorrow is filling our hearts because it doesn't seem like you're here. You know, it's been said that if your heart doesn't get broken once a day, you're not paying attention. Just look around. The political establishment can't seem to muster enough consensus to explore the root causes of a violent insurrection or even to name it as such. As a nation, we lack the spiritual resources to mourn the murder of children in our schools. And what's worse, what's worse than all of that is that when we look to the church for the presence of Christ, it seems like every six months there is a scandal there too. And you know, with all of this, it's, it's, not, it's not just that the things that happen in the world are bad. It's that we don't seem to be able to make any meaning out of them. We don't know the direction of history. We don't know why the things that are happening are happening, or even how to mourn and grieve them appropriately. We recently had one of these examples of incoherence hit home at our house. You know, my wife is a midwife. The word midwife is taken from Middle English mid with wife women. To be a midwife is to be with women in labor and to help them when they bring a child into the world. That job, that uh, cohort of midwives started as a way to bring women's voices and experience into a world that was dominated by men. It was a way of saying this is something that women do, that is given to women to do, and as women, we will be with them as they do it. Recently, there's been a great uh, uproar in the uh, collective body that governs midwives. The American College of Nurse Midwifery has recently made the recommendation that they no longer use the language of women in their material. Out of a desire to accommodate those people who would have babies who no longer consider themselves women, they want to discard the language of women altogether. Now, again, the problem is not so much the problem, it's that it makes everything that came before it incoherent. Forty years ago, the world was very serious and with good reason about bringing the experience of women's lives to the center of the way that we talked about who they are as persons no longer. As I've said, it would be look at, easy to look at the incoherence as a world. It would be easy to look at the incoherence of the world as though it were a sign that Christ had abandoned the world and abandoned his church. But Jesus tells us here in John 16 that the heartbreaking things that we encounter in the world are actually something altogether different. The state of the world is actually what happens when Christ is rejected. 
what seems to be the things that break our hearts, they're, they're not a bug. They're a feature of the Spirit's work. In the Gospel of John, the primal sin, the sin that gives birth to all other sins, is the rejection of Jesus. And it's the Spirit's work to bring that reality to light. You know, in recent weeks, I've had uh, conversations with a number of you. you you've, you've honored me by telling me some of the struggles that you've had in situations where you let it slip that you were not up with the secular consensus on a particular social, uh, contentious social issue, and you've lost out because of it. Maybe you no longer got invited to the book club or the wine and cheese group or the girls' luncheon. Maybe you lost out on a job opportunity. Maybe someone wouldn't give you the money that you were hoping they were going in uh, with you about. And that hurts. But it might seem strange to suggest, but I would like to suggest that this morning is that what is really happening in your life in those situations is that the Holy Spirit is doing the job that He was sent to do. The truth of John 16 is that you are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live your life, Lord willing, more and more and more into the image of of the Son, into the image of Jesus. And the more and more you become Christ-like, the more and more it is as though before the very watching eyes of the world, Christ is crucified all over again. Of course you hurt. Of course you have pain in your life. Our Lord said, they've hated me and they'll hate you in exactly the same way. So our Lord gives us this assurance ahead of time. He wants us to know what will happen to us if we live in the world conformed to His image. There will be anger and anxiety that is directed toward us. And friends, friends, my dearly beloved, that's the way it should be. You're doing what your Lord asks you to do. And you can, you can respond when those things come up out of love and not by giving evil for evil. Why? Because when you see the contention of the world against you, know that this is the very world for whom God sent His only beloved Son. So He assures you, first of all. That's the first job of the Spirit, to reassure you. But the wonderful thing about the Spirit is He doesn't just reassure us. The Spirit isn't there to just pat our hand and say, there, there, gentle Christian, everything is going to be okay. No, the Spirit also gives us another thing that we desperately need. And that's insight, empowerment, enlightenment to see the way that things really are. The sad fact is that uh, so many Christians seem to live in the world as though they did not need the insight and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a hard question. Why are there so many Christians who seem to know the basics of the gospel? They could probably quote you the Nicene Creed. 
They self-identify as Bible-believing Christians, but for all intents and purposes, they live their lives no differently than anyone else. On paper, they're Christians, but in real life, they're practically atheists. They know the truth, but the truth isn't real to them. You know what I mean? You know how you can, you can know something without knowing it? They live as though the most real things in the world, the things about Jesus and his Father's love that he participates in and the gift of the Spirit, they live as though those things are not real and that the bottom dollar and the 401k and the promotion and having perfect little children is real. Jesus says, second job description of the Spirit is to allow you to live as though Jesus is the most real thing in your life. Did you know that? Let me give you an example recently, see if I can make this a little bit plainer, about knowing something without knowing it. Just as an example, the other week, uh, last Saturday, we were supposed to take our kids to the, uh, you know, we, we, sh we have a family calendar that we share and because we're so busy, like everybody, we try to keep everything on the calendar. But sometimes I look at that calendar, and it's just words on a page. It doesn't mean anything to me. And so last Saturday, we had the, uh, the pre-Pentecost uh, pool party for the kids out at the Collier's house. And I had it on my calendar. I knew that we were taking them there. And I had planned to drop the kids off and then run some errands and then come back and pick them up. That's what we always do with St. Thomas kids. And my wife said... <laughs> No, honey, this is not 1987 in Winder, Georgia. People do not drop their kids off at the pool and leave. You're supposed to be there. This is 2022. And I said, oh, oh, we're supposed to be there, and it starts when? And suddenly it was real to me, right? I knew that I would have to reorient my future based on this thing that had now become part of the motivating force of my life. Jesus tells us that when we read Scripture, He's going to give us the kind of assistance in the Spirit that makes that more than words on a page. That He will send one who will come along beside us and that will allow us to live from the place of the truths that we say in worship, to make them really real to us. To live as though the most real things about Jesus motivate us more than anything else. And that's what it means for the Spirit to guide us into all truth, to take the things that belong to Jesus and to declare them to us. It doesn't mean that we'll know the truth of every single situation or that we're, we will merely have more knowledge. It doesn't mean that we'll uh, perfectly understand all the subject matter or know the true cause of inflation or be able to predict the future. No, the truth that the church proclaims has a continuity that the world's truth does not have. Certainly there are things uh, that the church knows now that we didn't know 100 years ago or 50 years ago. But unlike secular truth, the truth of the gospel is about a person who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And that central truth that we proclaim is no different than what the disciples testified to when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We proclaim the truth about a person. And as you know, every person is a unique mystery. For instance, if if I were trying to tell one of you who I don't know very well, if I were trying to tell one of you about my wife, I could, I could describe her in, the mode, in a descriptive mode. I could say she's about 5'11", she has brown hair. I could uh, list her accomplishments. I could alphabetize all of her graduate degrees and, and uh, personal, you know, professional uh, little things that go after her name. I could tell you she's from Johnson City, Tennessee. And that would all be good enough until she showed up. But when she walks in the room, what would I say? Please meet my wife. And that would be it, because you would be in the presence of a person. You would be in the presence of a mystery. And the Holy Spirit takes all that Jesus is, all that His presence means to us, and makes it present to us. The Holy Spirit is the invitation for Christ to come into the room where you are, and He will do it. He does do it. The Spirit is God's way of introducing Jesus to us. So how, does, so how does the Holy Spirit do it? If the Holy Spirit's job description is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, to reassure believers, to lead us into all truth, what's the method? Well, we, we know the method of accomplishing the job because we know the Spirit's job title. You know how when you advertise a job, Sam's sitting out there. We recently had to advertise a job for a new, what do we call him, comptroller, financial? Uh, business administrator. Business administrator. Daniel's very shrewd about these things. He probably thought for a minute, like, what do we want to call this person? And so much of what the job is is built into the title, right? It's no different than the spirit. John 16 describes him as an advocate. Some other English translations might say counselor. I like advocate because uh, this is without, di- without doubt a, a legal advocate. It's kind of like uh, that old TV show, JAG, Judge Advocate General. You know, that's a military term for military lawyers. You have an advocate before the judge. Well, that's the Spirit's work. He's not a counselor in the sense of like a marriage counselor or a psychiatrist. No, this is someone who comes along beside you in the courtroom. So what method, if the Spirit is our lawyer, what method does the Spirit use? Now, earlier I got awfully close to something I'm going to warn you against, and and that is um, the trap of getting involved in the culture wars of looking at the world and saying, look at that, look at, look at those people over there, bad old world. We're over here, we're the Christians. We, morality, middle, middle class family, good people. But the world, the world out there, oh, well, let's protect ourselves. Is that what the Spirit does? No. <laughs> Your dollar's coming right after church. You know, in divorce proceedings, one tactic that the legal team might use is uh, character assassination. 
where someone tries to convince the, the, the jury that they're a really good person, and it wasn't their fault. It doesn't take two to tango. It was all their fault, and so they assassinate the character of the other person. And the church can feel so embattled at times. We can become so sad because we've lost relationships. We can lose out on opportunities. We can feel that God's presence is gone, and it can, it can make you hard. It can make you bitter. And if you're, not careful, you, you, if you're not careful, you will assassinate the character of the other people. At least I'm not like that. But that's not what the Spirit does. No one knows the spirit of a person better than the spirit within them. And the Spirit of God that dwells in you will lead you into all truth. The Spirit convicts you and you and you and you. Doesn't convict somebody else to you. Spirit comes along beside. So if that's not the Spirit's method, then what is? You know, sometimes a legal team realizes that they have one, one chance to convince a jury. They hang their whole case on one single fact or one single insight in order to simplify it to the jury. Some of you are old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson case. If the glove does not fit, you must acquit. Brilliant. Our legal advocate before the Father, the Holy Spirit, hangs the entire case on one thing. And that's the person and work of Jesus Christ. The whole case is about Him. It's not about you. And your righteousness, it's not about you and the fact that you haven't sinned. It's all it's those other people's. It's the systemic stuff. It's not me. The Holy Spirit makes the whole case about Jesus Christ. At another point in the Gospel of John, John says that all along, Jesus has been calling other witnesses. Jesus says, my servant John, the prophet, he testified about me. My works, the miraculous things I do to heal and teach and proclaim, they testify about me. Moses and the scriptures, they testified against, about me. They testified about the fact that I came from the Father. But you won't believe, no matter how many depositions you take or how many witnesses you call, So God loves us so much that he tried another tactic. He didn't just make it about the person and work of Jesus. You know, every once in a while when a defense team gets really desperate, they'll put the, defend, they'll, they'll put the defendant on the stand. You know, enshrined in the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment, is the right not to testify against yourself. But in the person of Jesus, God himself takes the stand to testify of his love for us. The Spirit is our legal advocate who shifts the attention of the court away from what we have done to what Christ has done for us and in us such that our guilt or innocence rests ultimately in God's judgment of him and not in us who will condemn us Christ himself is the judge, 
No one can condemn you. But even Jesus taking the stand wasn't enough. They still loved darkness more than they loved light. So when the world wouldn't listen to arguments, the only thing left for God to do was to show us on full display how we had turned against him. Even though Jesus had perpetrated no crime, he allowed the sham justice of humanity to parade him before the eyes of all as one condemned to justice. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. And then finally on the cross, he became not just the witness or merely the defendant, but on the cross, he also became the victim of the crime. And here is the miracle. By giving himself fully over to the kangaroo court of sinful humanity, by trusting himself entirely to the Father's will, only by becoming the victim could he also become the judge of all. Do you see that? (laughs) Friends, does that truth, does that truth Fill your heart with thanksgiving. Is that that really real to you? To see how utterly God loves you and that he doesn't stand over you handing down a sentence five to ten. But he was with you and for you. He was down in the trenches with you. He went all the way to the cross for you. And it is only from that place that he judges you, not by your merit or your failures, but by what he himself has done for you. It was only by completely entrusting himself to the twisted system that he could show the system of human justice for what it was. Do you see who you've got on your side? Do you see what a defense team God has assembled to protect you from the arrows and slings of the devil? You've you've got the legal team of the century. You've got the judge, the advocate, and your friend. They're all with you and for you. And not only that, they're in you. And so when you hear the condemnation of the world, when you are criticized and you have a a temptation to take that in and say, oh, I'll never do any better. Friends, that's not the spirit. The spirit is the one who is in you that says, that ain't you. I died for you. I loved you. You have an eternal inheritance with brother Jesus. I've set you, I've I've crowned you with goodness and honor. That's what the Spirit does for you. There is now no condemnation for you. Why? Because he set you free from the law of sin and death. He's done what the law couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you walk according to the Spirit? Or for all intents and purposes, are you like a dead man walking? waiting for the warden of this world to hand down some tasteless prison food as your last meal. The Spirit even now is calling out to you and saying, come, buy buy wine without money and bread without cost. Why Why do you spend your money for what does not satisfy? 
Come, delight yourselves in rich food. I've set the table for you. I've given my all to you. Do you see that? Is it real to you? You know, all the Spirit needs from us is our nothing. I want to suggest for you one of the ways that you can take this truth from John into your heart is when you come to the table today to come with your nothing. Father Bill likes to say we don't, we don't take communion. We don't, we don't reach out and grab the bread. We come with open hands and empty hearts saying, Lord, fill me, use me, love me. Let me just be in your provision today. The Holy Spirit can use the, the simplest of things to guide you into the very truth of the universe. I had a mentor years ago who told me about a kind of a silly exercise that he did once on a walk to Emmaus weekend that absolutely changed his life. He was asked on the first night to write down his top three priorities. And so he took a piece of paper and he wrote, number one, God, number two, family, number three, work. And he felt pretty good about it. And he slid the paper away and looked around at other people, kind of drumming his fingers, waiting for him to be done. Then he looked down at the paper and he said, there was a voice inside of me that said, David, you're a liar. And he said, no, 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 it's right there. I've got it, one, two, three, that... No, you're lying to yourself and you're destroying your family. He said, I knew that I had one shot at this and I took the paper and I crossed out what I had written and I put number one, self. Number two, self. Number three, self. And he said, that was the first time in 15 years that I had spoken the truth. Friends, the Holy Spirit is standing next to you, ready to lead you into the truth of the person of Jesus Christ and what He can do for you. Is it real to you? Is God's Word opened up for you? Or are you living as though you had been condemned when you had not? I'm praying for you that in whatever way He chooses to reveal the Son to you, that the Holy Spirit would come in and fill you and use you and lead you into the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen.